Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active word of God, his two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, March 5th, we're studying Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Jesus comes to a pivotal moment in his ministry as he enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Brian Flamey. Pastor Flamey serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flamey, welcome back to Sharp Brian. Hey, it's really great to be back. As we get started this morning, Pastor Flamey, let's talk context. We're at a pretty key moment here in Mark's gospel as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. What have we seen so far? What do we need to know about Mark and the immediate context that'll help us into this text? Yeah, part of the media context uh, is this beautiful story of uh, blind Bartimaeus, you know, begging on the road, hearing that Jesus is coming. And there he he, uh, from faith, cries out for Jesus' help, and Jesus heals him. And this is in Jericho, on the road to Jerusalem. And, uh, and so here we can see that uh, the anticipation of the people is growing as Jesus, set, uh, who had set his eyes on Jerusalem, is coming close to his, his goal. Many times he had come to Jerusalem, both in his youth and, his, and in his adult years. But now he is coming as the sacrifice for the world's sin. Jesus knows this. He has been predicting his passion to his disciples, telling them that it is necessary for him to be uh, betrayed by the hands of his own countrymen into the hands of the Gentiles, to be, to be crucified, killed, and on the third day rise from the dead. And the disciples know it. Uh, and I think it's in John's gospel uh, before uh, Jesus goes down to Bethany to raise uh, Lazarus from the dead, that you have the disciples with resignation turning towards Jerusalem with Jesus, knowing what is going to happen there. Now, whereas before Jesus turned away from the attention of the crowds, especially Mark's gospel that comes out, how Jesus is, as one of my teachers once said, the illustrious Peter Scare, Jesus is like the reclusive rock star. Everybody wants a piece of him. <laughs> but he's always like retreating backstage when, when the crowds try to press in on him. Not anymore, though. Here the crowds are gathering. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. And it's a great moment of excitement and joy and anticipation. Uh, the crowds uh, see in him their coming king. Before Jesus had turned away, when they tried to press him, into a kind of kingship, especially after the feeding of the 5,000. But now uh, Jesus receives their, their praises and their acclamation uh, because now he's going to be the kind of king that they need, not a king to rule over them like Caesar or to dispense bread, but a king who lays down his life as a sacrifice for the many. With, with some of that in mind, what do you think of the title that often gets assigned to this text? I'm looking at the ESV here, and above mm. Mark chapter 11, it's called the triumphal entry. And on the one hand, it certainly has the character of triumph from the crowd's perspective. 
And there is triumph from Jesus' perspective as well, but it's a different sort of triumph. And again, knowing that the titles are not inspired by any means, mm. but what do you think of that title? Is it helpful? Is there another title we might give it? What do you think? I I would prefer to call it by uh, sort of uh, to fix it in our minds in the liturgical calendar, right? Call it Palm Sunday. You know, this is the and and when we call it Palm Sunday, uh, then it's good for us to to remember how Jesus uh, comes in. In, certainly in a kind of triumph. I think that's accurate to a point, but it's the triumphal entry unto death, right? To to offer up himself as the only acceptable sacrifice to God for the world's sin. And that's the context with which you have to see this as the beginning of uh, the last most holy days of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. Everything comes to a head during this week as he cleanses the temple, as he teaches in the temple, especially the teachings that Jesus does there, uh, put an exclamation mark on all of his preaching and teaching up to this point and sets into the proper context his betrayal, his sufferings and death. And here during this week, we also have Jesus instituting the sacrament of his body and blood. And so to think of it, I think as Palm Sunday would probably be more helpful. Also remember that at least in uh, the historic one-year lectionary, the triumphal entry, as it's as you said, it's it's called, uh, begins the church's year, right? And there, uh, and, and I really like that how the church year begins Advent one, right, with Jesus coming into Jerusalem, because there you could see that here is God entering into our presence for another year of grace. How does He enter? You know, with the pomp and the glory of Caesar. No, he humble. He he uh, he enters with uh, this this humbleness, right? And 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 in lowly grandeur, as our savior, and uh, the one who gives us God's grace and peace, as opposed to the one who exacts, you know, the strictures of the law, and the demands of obedience. Instead, he is the one who gives us from grace, right? God's favor, his kindness, his love. As you said, this text does show up every year, particularly in the one-year lectionary in, in Advent 1, and it is an option in the three-year lectionary, too. I'll just throw that out there. We just we just hear from each different gospel each each year. So, anyways, but, but with a text like that, it's very familiar to us, I think. And this is one of the texts that is included in all four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell us about Palm Sunday. And so, in with that, it's a very well-known text, sometimes one of those texts where we we quote know it and we know what happens and maybe we don't always pay as close attention to the text that's in front of us here's where i'm going with this pastor flammy is there what's the particular mark and flavor that we're going to get from his account of palm sunday here yeah that's great um a couple of details uh really stick out especially the conversation that goes down uh, between the disciples, the two disciples that Jesus sends ahead to untie the colt and the people who are standing there, and uh, how when they give Jesus's explanation to the people, uh, the people let the colt go. And then also you have this a bit of ambiguity in Mark's language, like, is Jesus promising to send the colt back right away, as some interpreters uh, have taken that option, or, or did they send it, the colt, you know, the people standing there, to Jesus right away, you know? Mm. Now, so that's an interesting facet of this. Uh, also, uh, we think of palms and cut branches on the road, right? When, when it comes to Palm Sunday, Mark is careful to include uh, the garments of the disciples 
that are both put on the back of the of the donkey, right? And also on the road, right? So that helps to to fill out the picture of what's going on here. Not only do you have little kids waving branches, right? But you also have the 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 garments of the people strewn before Jesus, right? And that just goes to show this great confession of of Jesus's kingship. You know, you don't do these things for uh, for a typical man. You do these things for a king. And that helps to impress upon us that even though Jesus is entering in in lowliness and and humility, uh, that doesn't mean uh, that the people were confused about, uh, you know, his uh, that his king, his claim to kingship. You know, instead of telling people to be quiet, as you know, in the other gospels, we hear about the Pharisees and the other people telling it, uh, Jesus, make your disciples be quiet. And then Jesus makes the comment, well, if you if you shut them up, even the stones themselves would cry out. So instead of refusing the people's acclamations, he's receiving them. Right. Uh, and confirming them uh, uh, by by entering into Jerusalem in this way. Let's read from Mark then. Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That's the text for today, Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. Pastor Flammy, Mark begins this text by giving us a, a bit of geography, setting the scene. He says, they, that is Jesus, the crowds, his disciples, they're drawing near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage, Bethany, the Mount of Olives. Give us a little bit of geography here as we get started. Yeah, as far as I can tell from my reading and looking at, at maps, uh, <laughs> that Bethany is probably between a mile and a half and two miles east of Jerusalem on the road to Jerusalem. And then Bethpage, uh, according to some scholars, is about half the distance between Bethany and Jerusalem, a small hamlet, and likely the place where the episode of the disciples who went ahead of Jesus and untied the colt, where that happened. Uh, and so uh, that's as far as I, I've been able to find out. So they're, they're going near to Jerusalem, and the disciples have known that that's where they're going. As you said, Jesus mm -hmm. has told them this. He's told them that Jerusalem is the place where all of these events are going to happen, that he will suffer, he will be killed, he will be raised, all there in Jerusalem. They're getting close, and so he's going to make preparation for his entrance. He sends two of his disciples. We don't know which two, and then he gives them these instructions. And as you said, this is one of the features that Mark gives, this instruction of Jesus and then it actually happened. So help us into those words from Jesus in verses two through three. Yeah, absolutely. So what we see, I think, uh, I know that some people might disagree is, is Jesus exercising his divinity, uh, the, you know, the power of his divinity to, 
uh, to command uh, his own entrance into Jerusalem in the appropriate fashion, because what's more, most important is that the scriptures, the promises of God that came through the mouths of the prophets be fulfilled, right? And so it wouldn't do for Jesus to just walk into Jerusalem, not at all. Uh, to fulfill the, the holy scriptures, to fulfill the promises of the prophets, a cult is necessary because Zechariah had said so. And so Jesus uh, uh, says there's going to be a cult there, and he gives the disciples the precise words that are necessary for the cult to come, to serve this, this most holy purpose of bearing the world's sacrifice uh, into Jerusalem, the holy city. Now, uh, I don't know. So I've heard other, uh, other people say about this that, oh, you're, you're uh, over-spiritualizing the text. Uh, Jesus had been through this town so many times. He knew there, were, there happened to be a cult there, right? So, yes, perhaps he had his mind on fulfilling the Holy Scriptures, but he, then he, he, he knew uh, the guy who owned the colt, and so he just told the disciples to go ahead and, and untie the colt. And when they said the Lord, they would, the guy would say, oh, yeah, Jesus, I know him. You guys go ahead and take it, right? Except uh, that, 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 uh, that encounter seems so uh, mundane, right? And, and so that, that what would be the point of recording it? I mean, you could almost see the trepidation, I think, when you read Mark's account of the two disciples, Peter probably being one of them because of the, the detailed nature of the account. Mm. They walk up to the cult, you know, uh, it's probably, I don't know, do you have like many sheep or goats or horses at home? I, I don't personally, but we have folks in our congregation who, who do. So I, I'm, I know how that works. Yeah. So if it's unbroken, right, is it, is it going to be friendly towards you? No. Uh, these things need to be worked with and gentled. So the fact that it's a cult means that the, it's probably hemming and hawing back and forth and, and they're trying to untie it, right? And the guys see and they're like, oh, wait a second. If they want an animal, they shouldn't take that one. And uh, when they ask what's going on, they speak these words. Now, this is what I think. That is, as Peter or one of the other disciples says, the Lord has need of it. Bethpage being inside of the walls of Jerusalem, uh, the men there being pious uh, sons of Abraham. What is brought to their memory are the words of prophecy and that uh, the cult is now necessary for the Lord means that the time has come, uh, that the Lord himself is about to enter in to his city, into the city uh, uh, where, where, you know, there is the temple and where, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the great works and the Messiah are about to take place. So this is what I think. It's, it's so it's not so much like uh, a Jedi mind trick, you know, where the guys walk up and say magical words and they let the donkey go. Instead, they speak the words that draw the connection in these faithful Hebrews minds, right? Between what's happening and the words of prophecy. And, the, and they themselves see that the scriptures are being fulfilled, Right. And so immediately, right, you get the sense of urgency. They say, yes, please take the cult. And you don't hear about the cult giving the disciples any trouble, right? Uh, appointed for the purpose, it, it carries it out. Uh, Jesus, with the, uh, the, the garments draped across the cult's back, sits upon it and, it, and it bears Jesus up to Jerusalem in fulfillment of what the prophets had said, right? Now, imagine the excitement of the men who had released the cult. I mean, surely they would have gone out and grabbed their friends and their family and started to spread the word. The Messiah has come. The son, uh, you know, the, 
the uh, David's son is finally here. The great king is arriving. And this helps to explain the crowd that goes before and follows Jesus, right? People were waiting for him as he's going up to the city, probably the same people who had released the cold for them. I think that's a very good picture to have in our minds. I like the way that, that you've framed it with these men who released the cult as being, okay, the Lord's here. All these Old Testament prophecies are going through our minds at that moment. You mentioned Zechariah 9, Pastor Flamey. What mm. what connections are they making from the Old Testament? What are the texts that are, are in their minds that are, are leading to all this excitement when they hear that the Lord has need of this cult? Yeah, so first of all, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. I'll read that. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout out loud, O daughter of, Jeru- of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That detail of the humility of the righteous and saving Messiah uh, is a, a, a sort of a, a prophetic mark that was in the minds of Zachariah's hearers up until Jesus's time, right? And so the cult was not just a, it, it, you know, sometimes you read the words of the prophets and, and their words wash over us, but you have to understand the sort of specific nature of the prophecies that were held close to the hearts of, of their hearers. So that it, you, whenever uh, a faithful Israelite would look upon a cult, they would say to themselves, this is how the king, the saving king will come, right? And, and so, the, so also, when, when the disciples were untying the colt and they said, the Lord has need of it, uh, then they themselves uh, understood that the, here the saving king is coming, and now is his time. He's coming on the full uh, of a donkey, just as the prophet had said. And, and so, you know, the, 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 the thing that they were looking for, the specific pro, uh, prophetic utterance that they had been anticipating is now being fulfilled. That's, I think, what you can draw from that. Now, about this king, if you go to Ezekiel chapter 37, and then you look at, let's say, verses 24 through 28, you have a remarkable passage about the coming king. Um, there you, of course, Ezekiel writes from exile, right? And, uh, the kingdoms have been shattered. Well, you know, both of them. And now the, the only king that the people are anticipating and looking forward to is the king, uh, the son of David, who will sit on the throne eternally. And that's indeed what's promised in verse 24. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. And your and their children's children shall dwell in them forever. And my, David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Right? And so the people are anticipating the return of David, their king. And they know that he is bringing with him a, uh, not just a, his own person, but his, own, his rule of peace, a new covenant. A new, uh, uh, I don't like using the word relationship, I suppose, but 
I don't know how else to avoid it here. A new relationship with God that's not determined by the old covenant of law, right? In obedience, uh, by which they had lost their kingdom through their disobedience and idolatry. Now, this is a new covenant of peace, right? And this is exactly what Jesus does. He enters as a king. And the covenant, might we call it even a testament, a new testament that he establishes, a new testament of peace from God towards men is bought with the precious price of his own blood, right? That he poured out on the cross to reconcile us to God. And his presence is, uh, it continues to be among us, right? Through his words and his sacrament. And in this way, he sanctifies his people. He gives them their own land. It's, it's not a land such as like Caesar rules over on the earth, but a, a heavenly land, a heavenly country, you know, citizenship in heaven. It totally unlike the kingdoms of this world, right? Uh, the promise of resurrection, the eternal life, all of this belongs to Jesus's heavenly rule and his kingdom. And this is also what the Gentiles see and what they desire. And so this is the kind of king that Jesus is. And this is the kind of kingdom that even some of the Israelites were anticipating. Sure, some of the Israelites were thinking the Messiah was going to be another I don't know, more powerful Maccabees or a Caesar in his own right, right? Uh, but many of the other Israelites who especially had been anticipating through the preaching of the prophets as opposed to their own religious opinions and who had been learning from Jesus's feet are now seeing, you know, the fulfillment of their reconciliation with God about to take place. You know, you remember Mary, uh, mm-hmm. who in, you know, I think it was in Bethany, right? She anointed Jesus's feet and, and his body in preparation for his, his burial, right? So at least one person is looking on all of these proceedings with a particularly Christian faith, right? Not seeing a conquering Caesar, but seeing uh, the sacrifice who now must die, right? Amazing. Yeah, it really is. I mean, and I appreciate that because it is very easy for us, I think. And we've seen the disciples, you know, blow it in Mark, particularly over and over again. <laughs> so it's very easy for us to, I think, get the the feeling that absolutely no one got it. And and on the one hand, okay, I mean, you know, everyone needs to to see what happens and to watch as Jesus is crucified, and that is particularly in Mark, the moment of of eyes opening in the centurion says, "Surely this mm. is the Son of God." But at the same time, it's not like these people had no idea of what the Old Testament said. They did know, and they had heard the preaching of the prophets. And and this truth about this king who who comes as the the greater David, the one who comes humbly on a colt, this is this is there throughout. Some of the other Old Testament passages that I've I've encountered previously, and you can if you want to comment on them, in yeah. in First Kings chapter one. When Solomon is succeeding David as king, David directs that Solomon ride on a mule, particularly, um, which I know is not a, a donkey per se, but there's there's maybe some some elements there. And then even going farther back, all the way to, to Genesis chapter 49, where you have Jacob blessing his sons, a, a donkey shows up in connection with, with Judah. And, and so I'll just read a few verses here from uh, yeah. Genesis 49, beginning at verse 9. Judah is a lion's club, or excuse me, a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet 
until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. I mean, you've got there with the concerning what Jacob says about Judah, you've got the idea of a ruler, the scepter not departing from him. And here you've got this this idea of the, the donkey being involved. And even with that, that talk of, you know, the grapes and the, the wine, uh, I think sacrifice is there as well. I mean, it seems already in Genesis 49, Jacob is, is thinking along these same lines. Oh, yeah. You have the whole of the gospel there in yeah. a nutshell. Like when we talk about the gospel in the nutshell and you think of what? John three sixteen, right? Right. Except this is, you find the gospel in a nutshell all over the place. And then the prophets themselves will preach on these texts. You know, so you have Isaiah who uh, talks about the, the Lord treading out the, the wine press of wrath, uh, but in such a way that he does it alone. Right. And, and so there, there you could see Isaiah picking up on the, the imagery and prophesying and preaching from it. Right. Concerning the work of the Messiah to atone for the sin of the people through his own through his own self, right? And not through the sacrifices of others. And uh, yeah, that's really fantastic. I'm glad that you brought that up. Uh, uh, and uh, sure, I mean, th- this is the thing. Sometimes you, you see these words and images um, and, uh, and, and it's easy just to think that they're just words on the page, right. but the Holy Spirit has a purpose in putting them there, right? It matters. It means something, especially when the imagery is as laden as this. So, I mean, absolutely, you should think of, of Zechariah preaching on the text of Moses and speaking about the coming Messiah. Hmm. Right. And, and so that, that, that even gives uh, more weight, you know, to the, the anticipation of the people and looking around for a guy riding a foal into Jerusalem and saying that this is, this is the one, you know, uh, the great descendant from Judah, David's son, even who has come to reign forever, because this is something that was clearly promised in the Old Testament. We have to remember that the Messiah, right, would have an eternal kingdom and sit forever on David's throne and even uh, uh, and even uh, be seated in the heights of heaven with God himself. Right. This is one of the things that the, the Pharisees, the scribes and the grammarians that they could never wrap their heads around. They were obsessed with the strictures of the law. Uh, Jesus, of course, during Holy Week, as he's preaching and teaching in the temple, points out their ignorance towards the promises that aren't about their obedience to the commandments, but rather are about God's works to redeem them from sin. Yeah, so that's fantastic. I'm glad that you brought that up. That's really great. Yeah, there, there really is so much there. Just in Jesus selecting this colt to ride into Jerusalem, and we're going to keep talking about that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, looking at Mark chapter 11 with Pastor Brian Flammy. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, March 5th. We're studying Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11 with Pastor Brian Flamey. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flamey, prior to the break, we were talking about this cult. No one's ever sat on it before and all of the Old Testament imagery that is brought to mind and the excitement that builds when Jesus sends his disciples and asks for this cult that the Lord himself has need of it. Give us some more on this this cult imagery. We could probably spend the whole time just on the cult, as I'm discovering now. Uh, But let's talk a little bit more before we move on. Sure. Uh, The first thing to mention is that uh, you have the use of unbroken animals for religious ceremonial purposes in the Old Testament. One example I'll bring up from Numbers chapter 19, verse 2, and this is concerning laws for purification. Uh, Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect in which there is no blemish on which a yoke has never come. Uh, and this is so the, the use of an unbroken animal denotes uh, something that is to be used for God's purposes, not man's. It's to be used liturgically uh, in uh, carrying out the divine service, which is fantastic because Jesus's whole life is the divine service. And uh, you see that Jesus being born up into Jerusalem on the back of a cult is God's own liturgy, right, for the atonement of the world. And so that's something to remember, that that this is a sacred moment, not a secular one. God is working here, not men. The other thing I wanted to say about the cult is uh, uh, the ancient fathers wanted to, to have a mystical meaning assigned to the cult, which I find somewhat fascinating. And so this is what they say. The Venerable Bede said, for the cult of the ass, wanton and unshackled. I I bet you didn't know that a cult is wanton. (laughs) (laughs) Denotes the people of the nations on whom no man had yet sat because no wise doctor had, by teaching them the things of salvation, put upon them the bridle of correction, right? They're like free and wild people, free range people left to the, you know, the, the, uh, yeah, the gods of, of, uh, of the demons and the idols and these sorts of things to, ob- to oblige them to restrain their tongues from evil or to compel them into the n- narrow path of life. And St. Ambrose says much the same, that when they found the cult tied, it was on this particular word, meaning maybe a cross section of two streets. And so St. Ambrose says something like, well, this is sort of like how the Gentiles are. Uh, middling between wisdom and folly and being uh, confused about all things in general. And so Christ has come to resolve uh, the, uh, to, to, to resolve the situation by sitting himself on the, on the cult, representing uh, the Gentiles, leading them in the path towards wisdom and away from sin and folly. Hmm. Right. Hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. This, this uh, mystical meaning that's been assigned to the cult, something that, uh, I think in just reading straight from the text, it would be hard to uh, to, to discover unless the fathers told us it was there. But I think it's absolutely true. Uh, Jesus entering into Jerusalem is for the ultimate purpose of being king, not only of the Jews, but the king of mercy and peace and salvation also for the Gentiles. Hmm. And so in that sense, yes, the cult is instrumental, uh, But does it mean, uh, according to God's purpose and according to the Holy Spirit, is it supposed to be a representation of the Gentiles? 
eh, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. I don't think so. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, I think, what I would say, too. Kind of like, eh, maybe. But, but to the point that Jesus does come as the sacrifice, the Savior for the Gentiles as well, we've seen that already in the Gospel of Mark. The, the one that comes to mind very uh at least at the very beginning for me is that Syrophoenician woman, you know, who comes to mm. Jesus asking for the demon to be cast from her daughter. And, and she does so, you know, in, in faith. And so we've, we've certainly seen that Jesus is the savior is the sacrifice for Gentiles as well. Again, whether the donkey is the representation of that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't it's know. better to point to the Syrophoenician woman. I mean, That's she right. has such great, fantastic faith. Every time you have these examples of great faith in the new Testament, they come, on purpose from the Gentiles. Jesus is yeah. teaching his disciples a point, especially the, the disciples who are trying to turn away the Gentile, right? It said he wanted to see them to learn that, no, you're not to be the, the gate that keeps the Gentiles out. You are to be the path for the Gentiles to me, mm. right? Through your preaching and your teaching. And so also St. Ambrose and, and the other fathers say that the disciples strew their garments on the road leading up to Jerusalem, symbolizing, get this, they're teaching and preaching that would lead uh, the Gentiles to Jesus. Hmm. No kidding. That's hmm. what they say. I kind of like that. It makes for a good sermon illustration. But again, does, did the Holy Spirit mean that by this mystical symbolism of the, of the garments? Eh, I don't know. That's right. Maybe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's probably a why. You know, look at where, where is this taught very clearly in Scripture? And for example, you know, right after this, and the text we'll look at next week in, in Mark chapter 11, oh, where Jesus cleanses the temple, and he talks about his house being a house of prayer for all nations. I mean, so again, yeah. you know, the Gentiles are very clearly included in this salvation that Jesus comes to bring as the king for all people through his sacrifice. Is that being communicated symbolically? Uh, yeah, but but it's it's certainly a reality that we get from God's word. Take us more into those those cloaks, Pastor Flaming. You mentioned that at the beginning as one of the the things that you know we're seeing here. Something Mark's emphasizing with the cloaks being laid on the road as well as on the donkey. Yeah, so this is this is great. Uh, the the Holy Scriptures likes to break down uh, these. Uh, artificial theological paradigms that we have set up in our own heads from time to time. And one of those, I would say, is Luther's uh, famous distinction from the Heidelberg Disputations, the theology of cross versus a theology of, of glory, right? It becomes so glib that it becomes, I don't know, counter. it works sometimes counter to the Holy Scriptures. When you look at this procession, one of the things that we can say is that there is indeed glory, Glory being assigned to Jesus, Jesus receiving it, and the people pointing to Jesus and saying that this is our glorious king, and that's good. And so, yes, the palm branches are waving just as they, they waved uh, uh, in ancient times for a conquering king who would be entering a defeated city. Amazing, right? That's what that symbolism carries, that weight. And then also the garments being thrown uh, before this man whose animal will trample upon them shows uh, the fealty and the obedience and the honor of the people towards this man, that they see him not as a figurative king, but this is something you do for a literal king, you know? And so it, it emphasizes the moment. It creates a, a moment of great excitement and joy and anticipation as to what he is going to do. And, uh, and this also serves the purpose in, in Bible reading and Bible study of uh, opening our eyes. It makes us pay attention. Uh, it, and uh, so as you follow the story of Jesus to this moment and see Jesus receive this 
acclamation and glory and praise. And uh, you and, and uh, you know that now it's time to see what Jesus does next, because this is going to be the most important thing. This is going to be the most meaningful thing of his entire earthly ministry. Hmm. Uh, with with that, the idea of that this is going to be the most important thing in Jesus' entire early ministry, not only do we get these actions from the crowd, the spreading of the hmm. cloaks, the waving of the palm branches, but this, this huge crowd, and I mean, you know, verse 9, there's those who are before Jesus, there are those who are after Jesus. This is, I mean, just a, a royal procession is happening mm-hmm. here. And they're, they're not only doing things, but they're saying things. And, and I think we can spend yes. a lot of time here, too. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Maybe let's start with the Old Testament background of these words and then work our way from there. Yeah, Hosanna, meaning save us now. Uh, And what's called to to mind are uh, uh, the, the words from Psalms 117 and 118. Uh, which would have been used liturgically, uh, so I've read, during uh, the procession up to Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths. Um, and so they, they're displacing their use and assigning it here, which I think is good and correct, because it's obvious from those psalms that they were pointing forward uh, to the salvation that comes not generically from a generic God, right, but specifically from the God-man who has come to give his life as a ransom for many. And it's fascinating. So if you go to Psalm 118, which is all about Jesus, it tells about Jesus. It helps us to anticipate uh, it. And, and certainly the people of the old Testament helped them to anticipate who Jesus would be and what he would do in verse 25. It says, save us. We pray. O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Right, which is where the Lord dwells. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Wow, look at that. So it, the people are crying out liturgically in a procession up to Jerusalem, save us, O Lord. They're, they're saying these words to Jesus as he's going into Jerusalem. And in that immediate context in Psalm 118 is the words of sacrifice, a bound victim, right? And so even though these are glorious praises being heaped up upon Jesus, again, he's not entering in like Caesar to kick down the door and to sit on a throne. He is bearing himself up to Jerusalem's walls and through its gates and into the temple uh, to be the sacrifice himself. It's amazing how the Old Testament binds all of this together. The salvation is coming. Uh, who's coming in the name of the Lord, right? Who preaches the Lord's word, who himself is the Lord, all uh, for the purpose of sacrifice, right? It's really amazing. And so when we, if we want to know the theology, oftentimes of these episodes from the New Testament, what we have to do is to find their antecedents in the Old Testament. We have to find the prophecies that are being fulfilled in the Old Testament and then read the Old Testament carefully to know theologically what's going on, right? It's kind of like uh, you, you look at the New Testament, it's the shiny new car, right? But if you want to know how the car works, you got to pop the hood and look inside. And that's what Psalm 118 does. It helps us to, to pop the hood, to check out what's on the inside. And there we see what's making this thing go, right? Is a sacrifice is necessary for the salvation of, of the Israelites and indeed for the whole world. 
Mm. You know, what's, what's telling, I think, about this use of Psalm 118 here by the crowds who are with Jesus is that Jesus himself picks the psalm up later in Holy Week when, yes. he's, when he's speaking to his, his opponents who come at him. You know, he tells that parable about the, the tenants in the vineyard who eventually kill the son. And Jesus actually quotes from earlier in the psalm, beginning in verse 22, where he mm-hmm. says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then I love that verse 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, which isn't only about, hey, I got up this morning. Let me let me be glad for a new day. But this is actually, you know, the day of the Lord's salvation. That's yes. the day that I'm to rejoice in. Such that, I mean, I really think you know, Psalm 118 sets the tone for all of Holy Week in this way, it all the does. way through the resurrection. It is a central passage for the entirety of the New Testament because it speaks about the foundation of the church, right? The cornerstone that was rejected. Jesus himself is the cornerstone. Uh, being rejected means that he was betrayed by them through their unbelief and their anger and their fear into the hands of the Gentiles. But in, in that happening, in that betrayal, he becomes the cornerstone of this new uh, church, of this church that is built not upon the law and commandments and obedience and judgment and sin, right? But, the, 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 but be, being built up on the sacrifice of God's son, you know, in our place to reconcile us and to, to bring us into the holy family. And so that as using the words of St. Peter, we become living stones fit into this building of the holy church. Isn't that amazing? That Psalm 118 is about Jesus being the cornerstone of the New Testament church. And so you have here in the Old Testament, a pure and clear preaching of the New Testament. And Jesus is clear. I think you're right about this. As he's teaching in the temple during Holy Week, that the scribes, the Pharisees, his enemies, uh, uh, the, the Sadducees, the whole of the Sanhedrin understands that Psalm 118 is about him. That's the kind of claim and teaching that he's making. Uh, the salvation, this new house of God that's going to be built up, it's all about him. And interestingly enough, when Jesus is finally arraigned before Caiaphas, right, uh, it all boils down to one central accusation, which is what? You said, Jesus, that you would tear down this building and, and, uh, and in three days rebuild it, right? Uh, and that's and so that's where they go. And knowing probably with anger that Jesus had spoken of himself as being the new temple for this people. Uh, it's amazing. And I know that you're going to be spending a lot more time on that, too, as you get into the rest of uh, Mark's passion account. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, just the fact that Jesus himself brings up this psalm and it's on the lips of the crowds as Jesus is mm. entering. I mean, it, it, it invites us to use that psalm. As I mean, just as a way to look at the events of, of all of Holy Week, all the way, I mean, even, you know, back up and I'm looking at Psalm 118 again, all the way in verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. I mean, it's as if this psalm is, is starting on Palm Sunday and yes. is taking us all the way through. And, and again, as you said, you know, I mean, like, well, I don't know. I mean, it, there's maybe some, some, we can't know for sure. Do the crowds know all of that when they're using it? I, I don't know. But to the reader of Mark and to the reader of all of Holy Scripture, we need to connect these dots in order to, mm. to get the full picture of what Mark's doing and what Psalm 118 was doing, too. So I think, yeah, so the way to think of this is that uh, we, we like to think in terms of binary. Well, it's Western Americans. <laughs> We're very pragmatic like that. Uh, these, these people, the, the realization comes gradually. As the dawn comes over the horizon, it doesn't go immediately from night to day, does it? 
Instead, there's a dawning of, of uh, there's a, a lightning to the horizon in the east. And then slowly the stars start to fade. And then the grayness of, of that pre-dawn light becomes a brilliant cacophony of colors through the sky, right? Mm -hmm. And all of that leading up to the finally the break of the sun over the horizon and uh, the dispelling of the last shades of night. Uh, that's the way it also happens in our minds with understanding. And that's the way we should think of the disciples' minds and, and the people who are gathered there singing Psalm 118 as Jesus is going into Jerusalem. They know that this is a psalm uh, that is to be used uh, for God's salvation that is coming into the world. And they see that salvation coming through Jesus, right? Uh, and do they understand the full significance? I mean, have they perfectly put together in their minds that he is the, the festal sacrifice to be bound up to the horns of the altar? No, probably not. But it, re but as we said, you know, realization of these things comes gradually. Mm. And then imagine how, when Jesus, after being raised from the dead, speaks to his disciples, and it's almost like at a word, everything clicks into place, mm. right? All they need at that moment of resurrection glory is that Jesus say the word about how all of these things had to happen, and then they can see it, right? Mm. As the as the as the sun comes fully over the horizon, and now it's fully day. Mark's given us that picture of the gradual realization in chapter eight. Jesus is a, a blind man is brought to him, and and Mark alone recounts it this way that this is the where the the man first he he doesn't quite see everything the first time. Yeah, it's almost yeah. like a, a false start if you want. To, I mean, we don't read it that way, obviously, but but he receives his sight gradually in two stages. As a, as a picture of the way that it, it does work for the disciples and, and even for us too, putting these things together. I, I would not have been any better at, at, at this than the disciples were had I been in their shoes. You know, oh, I mean, of course. They, they were watching it unfold too. But, but yeah, that gradual realization that, that we're seeing and, and as we see the gospel account as a whole and, and for us particularly, you know, standing where we do in history that, that we have known the fullness of this account. Oh, these these connections are so beautiful to see how how the Old Testament is proclaiming Christ ahead of time in such such clear fashion. What before we leave these these words, Hosanna, blessed is he. How do we we pick them up liturgically, not only in the sense that, you know, this is a text that will be used to mm. open the whole church year, but we actually sing these every time we receive the sacrament of the altar in the Sanctus. That's this gets yes. paired with Holy, holy, holy from Isaiah 6, we get this, this text from Psalm 118 and the way the Gospels pick it up as well. How does that function? Why is that an appropriate song for us to use in preparation for the Lord's Supper? It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, you have these words of the psalm that are bound together with Isaiah's vision of the temple of, of uh, God's courtroom in heaven and where the divine service happens. Uh, it's a very, very appropriate for that moment in our Sunday services. Why? Because God is there in, his, in, 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 in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? It is the holy place there on that moment in Sunday and, and there in that sanctuary with all the people gathered together to hear and to receive God's word by faith. There is God reigning among his people in this New Testament church that we were just talking about, where Jesus himself is the cornerstone. And, and, and then when we hear the the, the three holy, holy, holies, right? Or, or rather, uh, the three holies, I suppose. The trishagion. There we go. I, I'm more familiar with these fancy words, you know. <laughs> the trishagion. Then we have uh, attached to it, and this is a pr preaching of the gospel. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, right? So the triune God is among us, right? Not to hold judgment and to dispense, 
dispense punishment, but to save us, right? And so we sing the same words that the people who are gathered around Jesus on, on Palm Sunday were singing. And then we sing also with them, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And if you look at your pastor in that moment, and maybe you yourself do this at this moment, when he says, blessed is he who comes in the name, you, he makes the sign of the cross upon himself. Why? Uh, because well, what we have the benefit of is the, uh, the clarity that comes through the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the scriptures to know that the salvation that was brought by Jesus on that Palm Sunday was the salvation of himself nailed to the cross to atone for the world's sin and to reconcile us to our heavenly father. And now that saving work is going to be distributed to us through Jesus's own body and blood uh, in the, in the Lord's supper, right. For us to eat and to drink for, for our forgiveness and for the strengthening of our faith. Uh, so next time you come to the Sanctus part, uh, remember that, uh, even feel free. I encourage you to make the sign of the cross upon yourself when you come to in the name of the Lord, right. To remember that, that Jesus entered on Palm Sunday, uh, as that festal sacrifice to die, to reconcile us to the father, and even now he's coming to save us in the, in the divine service through the holy meal he instituted uh, for us on that, on that holy week. Uh, Pastor Flamey, our, our text concludes with verse 11, which I think yeah. provides a bit of a transition between the events of Palm Sunday and into the rest of Holy Week. It, it almost sounds a little anticlimactic. You know, he actually gets into Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. He takes a look around, but it's too late until he goes goes out of the city again. This is great. This is why I think that, so St. Peter is giving us probably the the most historically accurate uh, account of what's happening in these days of Holy Week, right? He knows probably already what St. Matthew, uh, his brother disciple, has committed to, to, you know, from pen to parchment and has been preached all over the world. And he's probably even familiar with the story that St. Mark is putting together and and so he wants to get the chronology right. And so he adds for us, it was late, right? By the time that Jesus got in, I mean, it was a procession for a king. It's, it's got to take time. It's like a, a glorious uh, tra- traffic jam on the way into Jerusalem. And then when Jesus gets to the, the temple, even though you have the, the theological effect of the cleansing of, of the temple that you get from uh, St. Matthew, uh, Peter wants us to know through Mark, the evangelist. No, Jesus got there. He looked around. Certainly he paid close attention. He was marking the tables he was going to cast over the next day. And then he left. Hmm. Right? And I think that's really nice that, that we have the full picture given to us, uh, both the theological significance of Jesus uh, cleansing the temple. And then also the historical insight from Mark, the evangelist, probably relating to us, the memory of St. Peter, that uh, it didn't all happen quite in that order. Historically, Jesus came, he saw he noted uh, uh, what needed to be done, and then he left to return the next day. And and that does set the stage for everything that's going to happen the rest of Holy Week. And and I mean, it, yeah, it sets the stage. Pastor Flynn, we've got about three and a half minutes here in the morning. Uh, summarize the text for us. Give us the goods. I mean, it's such, such a rich text. Help us to wrap things up. Point us to what this text is pointing to us, Christ crucified and risen for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, when we read about the triumphal entry, as it's sometimes called, or Palm, the Palm Sunday narrative, what we want to see is the humility of Jesus, 
that even though he is rightly being assigned praise and glory and and honor by the crowds using the words of the Holy Spirit that was first given through the, the prophets and the, and the psalmists, uh, we need to see that in the midst of all of that, you have Jesus coming in a lowly way for salvation. His lowliness, his lowliness is our comfort and our peace and our joy. Uh, because in an image of the law, and of the righteousness of obedience and sin and judgment and all that, you would expect someone who has come to to kick down doors, uh, to put you know the buildings to flame, and you would expect to see a conquering king like a, a Caesar or something like that. Uh, instead of seeing somebody coming in the power of his might, right? You see a man who has lowered himself, humbled himself to sit upon a foal, right? Not even a donkey, but the the cult of a donkey. And so Jesus coming into Jerusalem in lonely pomp, as the hymn says, in lowly pomp comes to die. He comes to offer himself as a sacrifice for the world, as a sacrifice to reconcile us to the Father, to justify us in God's sight, so that by faith, right, we would be received into the heavenly kingdom. Uh, thanks be to God that as we study this, this text, it sets, uh, it, it, like you said, it's a pivotal moment in the gospel. And it shows us that everything that is that, that Jesus has been preaching about and teaching uh, up until this point is for this purpose. So that in humility, he would come bearing the sins of the world into Jerusalem. And there uh, he would fulfill the Holy Scriptures and give the salvation that we need. Maybe not the one that we want of earthly pleasure, pleasure riches and, and glory and gain, right? the one that we absolutely need, which is reconciliation with the Father through the forgiveness of sins. Pastor Brian Flamy is the pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Pastor Flamy, thanks for being our guest today. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have questions about Mark chapter 11 or any of the gospel according to St. Mark, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.